Welcome back to another episode of Tips from the Pros, where we bring you first-hand experience from professionals that are killing it in their market, in their industry, with their strategies. And today we have on Brian Lang. Brian Lang is a CFO. He's a bookkeeper. He's a tax strategist. This guy has been saving us money for years. This is a guy we talk to consistently. And again, I get it. You don't like doing taxes. You don't like even listening about taxes. But when you hear all the things that are coming down the line in this episode, it's going to blow your mind. It's going to blow your mind and you're going to be like, holy crap, I really got to get my shit together. So real quick, little intro on who Brian is. Brian, as a kid, when he was eight years old, he used to have a, a sports video game on his Nintendo and he used to write down the stats of this game in a green notebook and break down the stats on his own because of how much of a nerd he was with these numbers. And then in college, he decided, you know, when he was in college to take up accounting because at the time it was the career that paid the most amount of money. And after college, he did some digging and saw that being a CPA was one of the highest paid uh, jobs out there. So that was all he needed. He went ahead, became a CPA. And in doing so, he fell in love with finding these little nuances and these little ways that he can help business owners and CEOs save a bunch of money. And that's when he really became and fell in love with accounting. And ever since then, he opened up his company, Upside CFO, where he's constantly helping people out with their books, managing their systems, helping them understand and project and plan for their finances. Um, he also has another company that's called AustinExecutiveTax.com and all the links are going to be below where he does, you can book a free call with him and have a consultation. So I definitely recommend everybody doing that. So with all that being said, let's welcome Brian Lang. Brian Lang, welcome to the show. Can you please start off telling us why, wh what is it that your company does and what is it that you do? All right. Yeah. So I have two companies. I have uh, an entity called Upside CFO Services and then Austin Executive Tax. So I essentially view um, what we do a kind of a myriad of ways. And as I alluded to earlier, you know, we work primarily small businesses, about a million to 10 in revenue. You know, some are a little bigger, some are a little smaller. Um, but I, I view our job is we're trying to save you, the business owner, um, anywhere from 10K to 100K a year on taxes. And then from a, a cash flow or profit perspective, we're trying to increase your, your cash or profits by about 10% or more in the first year. And we recently, um, humble, humble brag here on a little bit of a big win. We, uh, we just finished a tax planning um, project with a client. They were about 5 million in revenue and we hit our high. We're saving them 200K a year on a recurring basis on taxes. And then our, we had a one-time strategy we can put in effect this year about saving about 70K. So we're going to save them 270 grand this year. They made a little under a million in net income. So that was pretty, pretty cool to be able to do and to deliver that to that business owner. That, that, that's a big amount of uh, savings on that. And so how is it that you do this exactly? Like, you, you, you know, upside CFO, what is it that you do for the client in that business? Yeah, so on the CFO side, um, we, we essentially have two arms in that side. So we have like what I would call true CFO services and then also accounting. Um, so for you guys, you know, we sit in more of accounting role um, where we're basically just making sure your books are up to date. Um, 
you know, balance sheet and P&L is all that kind of a, a liaison. Usually um, we don't necessarily, we actually don't do a lot of our clients books from a tax side. So a lot of times, you know, we liaison with other tax CPAs and make sure they have the information they need. Essentially just making sure your books and records are up to date. You're looking at your data on a monthly basis. And then what I would say kind of separates the accounting side from the CFO side is when we're sitting as the CFO, you know, we're doing more deep dives into your numbers, your cash flow, your profits, um, and truly trying to figure out ways to generate more cash for you or help um, your company become more profitable. And that could be anything from trimming expenses to understanding, you know, some of our clients might have, you know, just say product one, two, and three, and they didn't really know how to quantify how profitable it is. So we go in and do our thing and be like, hey, product one and two are awesome. Product three is losing you 30K a year. And, you know, we can make adjustments like that. So just kind of having that next level of, um, of financial insight and expertise. And then, you know, a lot of times, I mean, you're a small business owner. I'm sure you get it. You wear so many damn hats in this space that, you know, you don't have time necessarily to sit back and truly do those deep dives into your numbers on a regular basis. And someone who's sitting there a little more neutral, I think, can provide a lot of insight. You know, just as an example, I'm, you know, obviously I'm a CFO. I get the numbers. I get all that. I pay someone um, to have a monthly meeting with me. Like I am, you know, a more experienced person. Um, You know, obviously I understand our numbers, but I pay a decent monthly fee. And quite frankly, for me, it's accountability. Um, So, you know, that that's another Plus in that it physically makes you sit down monthly and look at your stuff. And for us, I mean, you hit, a, I think, on an excellent point. We were doing our, by way, I mean, John was doing our books um, for the first couple of years as we started our business. But it just, when that's not your thing, right? Doing books. And that's, I would say, 99% of the people <laughs> don't understand it, nor do they like doing it. Um, right. You, you waste because it's not even a lot of people say, you know, oh, I'm saving money. No. The amount of time that you're wasting doing all that. I mean, to me, it's just we, when we sat down and we were actually going over is especially come, you know, tax time and, and we're getting all the W9s together and getting everything and pr- trying to get all the numbers. Like John right. spent weeks putting all that stuff together. I was like, I'm pretty sure we can make more money off of you doing something right. that you're good at than doing this stuff. And so, I mean, I'm sure you get that a lot, like where you, you probably still got to sell your service to people because they still don't value it. Like, how is it that you go ahead and you convince people on like the value of bringing you on? Yeah. You know, and I, I think just becoming uh, more seasoned is a, a business owner for me personally, you know, I felt like a lot of times, you know, it was like, Oh, try to convince and try to sell. And you know, granted, we've, we've grown up a little bit, right? So some, some of the sale is easier, but I can almost tell very quickly, um, you know, probably within a few minutes of like where that business owner is in their life cycle. And, you know, some people, you know, myself included, especially when you know the craft, I feel like you're less likely to get help in it. You know, like if you're really good at marketing, it's probably, you're probably not going to bring marketing people in as quickly as you should you know, I'm good at accounting. It took us longer internally to bring people on. So I feel like you can usually tell in a conversation with a business owner, you know, where they are and understanding like, 
okay, yeah, I know the importance of the numbers and kind of what you said. Um, I mean, we had someone we picked up recently where they have high paying W2 job and a pretty successful side business. And, you know, it's ultimately, she just doesn't have the time. And anytime she does the accounting, you know, it's late at night, it's on weekends and then tax time. It's, you know, it's just like a mental toll that's not worth it. And, you know, eventually, I feel like eventually a lot of the business owners are either in the growth stage where it's just like, yeah, I got to do it to survive and make decisions. Or it's just like, I can't, can no longer mentally do this. I don't have the time. And and that's, I think, something terrible too, where you're waiting until you're pretty much burnt out to do your taxes right like you're saying on the weekends on the evenings and and it's like this is a very serious part of your business to be doing with no energy no focus i mean you know this is where you can not only just pay thousands and tens of thousands of dollars but potentially get into some legal issue if you're not doing it the right way so you kind of touched on a point on like what for investors people listening what is it that you see that you, when you speak to somebody and you're like, okay, yeah, I think you're 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 ready for us to work together. Like, when is somebody ready to proceed with getting that kind of help? Yeah, so you know, if we're just talking purely real estate investors, um, I I don't know if there's a you know tried and true answer here. I think a lot of times it's when almost they're they're starting to scale a little bit, right? You know, maybe if you're just say a wholesaler or something, you have someone else, you know, it's like, okay, we need to bring someone else to help with some of this marketing and assisting properties. Like usually when they've kind of added that extra body or maybe two bodies, um, it seems like they're they're getting close on their capacity where they can't do it. And then, you know, just kind of the the buy and hold folks, depending on your background, I kind of see a lot of people just start, you know, like passing the reins over to us and just being like, I can't do this anymore. Is like once they hit four or five properties, um, you know, or, or maybe they start selling one every once in a while. And it's like, all right, I, I don't know what the answer is here in TurboTax. Um, so I feel like you get some natural hangups like that. And then flippers, um, man, flippers are the ones that have the messiest set of stuff usually because, you know, they just have a lot more transactions and they don't know how to do stuff. And I feel a lot of times on the flipping side, it's almost more income driven, you know, once they hit whatever that milestone where it makes sense. And usually it's in relation to the tax. I feel like almost every time it's just like, man, we were trying to do our tax return. And like you said, you know, with John back in the day and it happens to everyone, you know, it ends up just taking just so, so long to get the taxes done. And it's because you know, you just don't quite have the expertise to do the accounting like you need to. Yeah. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. It's definitely the expertise and then the time. And then, like you're saying, then the energy, because it's the, one of those things that you procrastinate, put off to as late as, late as possible, and then you yep. crunch it in the last minute. And it's just all looks <laughs> like crap. Um, and when you have people coming to you, what is the biggest mistake you see that, you know, investors are making or even business owners, let's cover just more generalized business owner. What is one of the biggest mistakes that you see that they've been doing with their books that you always have to correct? Yeah. So, um, I, I would say it's not even is, well, let's talk about books specifically and then let's get into some tax stuff. So I would say books, it's just not having the cadence of doing it consistently. Right. Like, anyone that does their own books, you know, you have to do what's called a reconciliation. And think of that in English as like, that's making sure you got all your revenue and expenses counted in there. 
And what ends up happening, you know, a lot of people wait and wait and wait. And then, um, you know, it seems like transactions get doubled up a lot um, or they just missed a ton of expenses. And, you know, that gets really, really messy when you're, if you don't have the accounting expertise to clean that up and then they end up paying a CPA, like we took over, um, I won't mention the person, but you actually know this person. And um, we took over their books for a while. And um, th I mean, they're small, like they don't do a lot of volume, especially at that time. And their tax bill was just something crazy, like 5K or 7,500. You know, I kind of dove down with them and I was like, why the hell is your tax bill so expensive? Well, they were paying their tax person 150 an hour to clean up the mess they had made throughout the year. You know, and it's like, yeah, I was like, your taxes shouldn't be really more than 1,000 or 1,500. And they could have had someone with a do it for you option on a reasonable monthly retainer, not have to mess with hardly any of it. It would have been clean and it would have saved them money on taxes. Um, and, and then from the tax side, what I would say, you know, sloppy books, like when we're just sitting in the tax side only, it, to me, um, I, I view taxes as two ways. And I, I don't want to discredit a lot of CPAs because this is an extremely important part of it. But, you know, a lot of CPAs, unfortunately, they have so much volume now um, where they just kind of take every client, whether it's like a regular W-2 person or a business owner, and they don't think about the profitability of their, their firm. So they have a million clients. And when you're just processing volume, all they're doing is they're taking your numbers and they're putting in their tax software and making sure it's in the right box. And that's very important. Don't get me wrong, because if it's not in the right box, that's how you get yourself in some deep shit sometimes. But, um, you know, to me, where the value is in tax CPAs and uh, I don't want to say the knowledge isn't out there, but maybe the time to work with your customers or clients, maybe that's not available. And that's being able to sit there and proactively tax plan. You know, that, that's where the magic occurs, in my opinion. And if someone comes in and brings you just this sloppy set of books, you know, we lose a lot of the capability to do what we need to do from a tax planning perspective. Um, so that, that's a really common mistake too. And that's kind of all in relation to, you know, the accounting side of things on the books. So, so uh, I mean, and I, I could definitely agree with that. I see everybody that starts thinking about taxes when taxes are due. And yeah. instead of, uh, I think, <clears throat> I mean, we seem to be one of the few because every time we go to our accountant, it, you know, they always tell us like, oh yeah, you're one of the few people that come talks to me about taxes the year before. And it's like, yeah, we need to <laughs> strategize like what's right. going to happen, right? Because, yep. uh, and, and I mean, whatever your political views are, we don't like paying taxes, right? I, I want to make sure that I'm leaving as much money in my business to keep growing my business instead of having to put it into taxes that goes to, you know, who the hell knows where the hell that money goes to. So I, I see that, you know, that, that strategizing, that planning is definitely something people lack. So with that in mind, somebody that maybe can't quite be at that level of hiring somebody like yourself, what is the best way for them to do this? Like, do you recommend like QuickBooks or like, just tracking their, what's the best way for them to strategize on, on their year? Yeah. So to me, I think the best thing to do is, um, yeah, I mean, th there are a lot of options out there, you know, where you can get bookkeepers or help for pretty inexpensive. 
And let's just say, okay, you're too small for that option. All right. You know, you're going to have to do a little bit yourself. I mean, on our real estate stuff, I kept all my stuff on an Excel spreadsheet for years. You know, I have a client, they pay us a retainer um, just to kind of help with some real estate, um, you know, gaps or knowledge and talk through stuff, almost more like an accountability coach. And, you know, I think he has six properties now, something along those lines does pretty well. And then, you know, has a nice W2 job and um, he, he's on spreadsheets and I, I don't right. see the reason not to be, it, it doesn't make sense to get an accounting system. Um, so, I mean, don't necessarily be, be like ashamed or scared to keep stuff on spreadsheets or whatever makes sense for you. Um, I think that's a sound approach. And then, you know, if you're at a point where you are making some money, I think it's important just whatever tax CPA you hire, you know, understand a few things from them. How often are you going to talk? Um, you kind of alluded to it earlier. Like we try to, you know, we're a little more boutique I get it. But we try to talk to our clients, you know, quarterly. Um, maybe you don't need it quarterly. Maybe sometimes we need to talk to someone six or eight times a year. You know, that's just kind of dependent on what's going on. But ask the CPA questions like that. And, um, you know, understand their fee structure. And in, in my opinion, um, a lot of CPAs underprice. So you can probably still get some good tax help, but you might need to be a little more proactive where it's like, hey, you know, I mean, there's so many resources. You guys are great on resources. You know, obviously all the real estate investors with bigger pockets or whatever blogs, you know, you can get a lot of tax information yourself now. You might not necessarily know how to execute it. And you might have to proactively bring that up to the CPA and be like, hey, I was thinking if we did X, Y, and Z, you know, could this work? Um, that, that's maybe a, a good way to do it for what I would call a lot of more of the traditional firms who have kind of a larger amount of volume. Yeah. And, and, and earlier, you, you were mentioning how a lot of people always think, you know, you're, you're a passive investor and that's mailbox money and you don't understand. I think they take the same concept with accountants because they hate it so much. It's like, oh, my accountant handles that. I always hear that, that expression from so many people, my accountant handles that. And I'm like, okay, but you should still understand what it is that your accountant mm -hmm. is handling. Right. Because right. I mean, we we've had, and you know that we recently had a big issue with one of our accountants. Right. And the reason we knew we had that issue is because we are very involved in our taxes. You know, that whole thing of my accountant handles that, that's how you end up in jail or, yeah. you know, how you end up paying a shit ton of money because you don't understand. So do you, when you get your people coming to you, are you seeing a lot of people that they're like, here, just take it and just let me know what I need? Or do you get people that are like more involved in their taxes? Um, I would say most of ours, maybe even if they don't like it from a tax perspective, they are involved because we essentially, if you're going to work with us, like you have to be involved. And I mean, John, if we were in church, you would get like a, a stand up amen from what you just said. Um, I mean, you as an individual, our business owner are ultimately responsible for your money, period. And while you shouldn't be a tax expert or a money expert or accounting expert, you need to have at least enough basic knowledge and wherewithal or insight to other business owners or entrepreneurs who can steer you in the right direction to make sure you are, you know, with the right professional. And I mean, the, the, I hated taxes. I worked at a huge firm for seven years, you know, mega corporate firm. I knew nothing about taxes until probably 
age 35. I'm not going to say nothing, but you know what I mean? But it was not my niche. It was not my craft. Like I was CFO side, you know, business side. I started learning about taxes, uh, age call it 34, 35. I'm 40 now and have my own firm already. And the reason it happened was, um, I was actually making a YouTube video for some of our clients about a specific tax strategy. You know, I got asked it a lot. So I wanted to sit there with my gray haired, you know, wise old accountant that I used to work with. So we're kind of drawing this stuff out on the board. And, um, finally I looked at him and I won't say the name, but I was like, why the fuck are we not doing this? <laughs> and he kind of looked at me and he's like, well, we can have a tax planning session if you want. And you know, the savings for me was something like 17 or 18 grand. Yeah. And at that time I just, you know, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. And, you know, guilty of what I'm preaching here, you know, like, Oh, they, they have it. You know, this guy's a real estate expert and he wasn't proactive on it. And, you know, I think I was paying like a thousand bucks for my tax return, maybe 1500. I'm like, I would have gl gladly paid you 10 K a year if my savings was 18 K. Um, you know, so that's something we saw kind of happen more. I know I'm ranting a little bit, but um, no, no, that's something we, we saw more and more. And that's how we got involved with the tax side eventually. And then, you know, I started studying it, liking it a lot. And obviously when it's your own money and then you get to help other people with that savings. I mean, it is, it's an extremely powerful tool. Um, once you know how to do some of the tax that, stuff. That's what it's like. I understand it's it's not sexy, <clears> but that, that's part of being a business owner. I think like if you want to be a business owner and you are picky in particular about the things you do or you only do the things you like, uh, it's going to be a tough time because I mean, as a business owner, there's a lot of things you got to do that suck, you know, yeah. and, and accounting is while it's not fun, it's something that, like you're saying, it can make you, it can save you, which ends up making you thousands and thousands of dollars, and especially as you get bigger. And it's, I see people that just get lazier and lazier um, with their, and I just want to be a real estate investor. And it's like, that's part of it. Like, it's not like being a real estate investor is just picking out cabinets and, and buying subway right. tiles, right? Like there's, there's a part to the business. Um, yeah. So with that, like, what is a more or less a, a cost that people can anticipate when they're saying, okay, you know, I, I really want to be able to sit down with somebody like yourself, somebody, you know, that can help me get my books. Like, what is something that do they pay monthly for something maybe on the advising side? And then you have the bookkeeping side, like what's, what's a plan look like for somebody? Yeah. So I'll just, and you know, this is, uh, uh, I mean, I'll just flat out kind of t tell some of our ballpark prices and then some other people I know. So let's just say tax side. Um, I see lots of tax returns done from anywhere from a thousand to twenty five hundred a month, uh, or excuse me, a thousand to twenty five hundred dollar. You know, for the kind of hey, we're doing your your corporate return, or I think you guys are an S corp if I remember right, but your your per business taxes and your personal, and you know maybe it could be three, a little more. Um, we do a monthly retainer. And, you know, we're usually anywhere more in like the $400, $500 a month range, you know, sometimes a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand. It just depends on the client, you know, what they got going on. And there'll be times where, you know, for if, if we're talking us particular, you know, it's like, hey, I, I think this relationship makes sense. You know, we can kind of adjust our minimum down a little bit and let this person grow with us. Um, just, you know, especially on the tax side, our goal, we, we try to want to help as many people as we can. On the, the accounting side, if you're just not talking CFO, but just talking kind of general accounting, 
I see, you know, there's, there's like the benches of the world that are kind of the automated big people who have raised a lot of money. You know, I think they maybe now they kind of nickel and dime you a little more. So it's hard to get like the true price, maybe 150, 200 a month. Um, a lot of what I would say the smaller firms that we see, you know, are the kind of three to $600 a month as a minimum for accounting. And, um, you know, some people will tailor that maybe you only need your books quarterly or whatever. And, you know, we, I think our largest client a month right now is 15 K. Um, so, I mean, it, it can go all over the map, you know, but I would say most like typical real estate investor, you know, not the ones that are doing 50 and 80 flips a year, but like the average person, um, accounting, you could probably say two to seven, 200 to 750 a month, just depending on your stuff. And I know these are wide ranges and I would say taxes anywhere thousand to 3000, 4,000 bucks a year or something like that. Yeah. And would it be fair to say that, you know, depending on where you are, I guess, as an investor, you, if you want free, the, the closer to free that you're doing is the more work you got to do right? Versus mm -hmm. the more you're paying is the less work you kind of got to do, right? So if you're if yeah. you're getting one of these cheap firms that are for $100 a month or something like that, there's probably a lot more that's involved with what you got to do to make sure that they're doing the right job. I mean, would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. You know, age old, just like in real estate, you get what you pay for. I always love when everyone always wants like, Oh, who is an investor? I mean, investor friendly, you know, any term, it's so stupid, right? Uh -huh. It's like, you mean, who's going to be cheap and shitty? Um, you know, and maybe you don't care because you're not taking pride on some stuff. And, you know, obviously in a perfect world, we all want to get inexpensive and awesome. Um, but, you know, that's not realistic. And in my opinion, especially not realistic in professional services and, you know, probably took me a little longer than I should have on my own businesses to um, realize that stuff. And like I said, you know, that, that one mistake alone, 18 K a year, you know, that was, I think that happened two years before I discovered that. So that was literally almost, and then there's some other strategies I know now that was like 40, 50 grand that I threw out the window where if I would have known what I knew then, you know, that'd be in my pocket instead of uncle Sam's. Oh man. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a large amount of money. I mean, I don't blame you for looking at him and being like, what the fuck are you doing? But yeah. but I mean, that's the stuff that we, we see a lot. And when whenever we sit down with our accountants, they're like, oh, hey, you're going to pay this much. And this happened to me last year. You're going to pay this much. I'm like, okay, well, what about this, this, and this? Oh, yeah, we can do that. Inside my head, I was like, why am I paying you? <laughs> right. Oh, my God. Just to make sure the proper boxes are checked. I mean, yep. it, it's just, but again, I, I still wouldn't trade it. Every time there's somebody giving a talk about accounting or anything like that, especially during this time, we see a lot of podcasts that are coming out with accountants and this and that and new laws. I'm always listening because just, yep. I'm not going to depend on my accountant to know my business better than myself, right? Yeah, no. And I mean, and you also get it, you know, sometimes we're keeping in mind when you're dealing with, uh, you know, like I said, we're small and boutique, but um, you know, when you're dealing with someone that maybe has, Hey, I know these guys are good. Maybe they have 20 or 30 people at their company. So, you know, they just kind of have that like street cred, right? It's like, Oh, these guys have it. Well, don't forget, there's going to be a junior person preparing your return. What happens if in that particular year, you know, whatever, maybe it was last second or the main kind of the, the older gray haired guy or gal with the, the knowledge, right? 
what happens if they were super busy at that time or cramming through a deadline or whatever it could have been. And maybe they didn't have the time to, to take on that return where they could have caught the typical, you know, most of them are pretty good about it. Obviously they're professionals. They do a good job, but you can get misses like that too. So that's why, you know, as you just said, I think it's very important to make sure you at least have a ballpark understanding of what's going on. Yeah. We, we have one of those, uh, big name accountants here that he's really good at marketing and is all over the real estate groups. And as soon as he ropes you in, you get one of these dumbass assistants that he uses that, you know, you get none of the perks that he talked about during those, yeah. uh, those speeches. So, but at the end of the day, it's the same thing. Like when people blame wholesalers for bad deals, it's your job to do the analysis. You know, right. if you get yourself a bad deal, could the wholesaler have been taking advantage of you thousand percent still your fault. You know, yep. so um, with speaking about wholesalers, I wanted to ask you this question. Mm -hmm. When should wholesalers consider getting an LLC? That's something that, I mean, it, it doesn't matter what podcast, whatever you hear, everybody, they, they think they're going to be a wholesaler. And the first thing they do is they go and they open up an LLC. It's like, to me, I'm like, but you haven't even done a deal yet. You know, <laughs> you don't even know if you like the business. You know, what's your uh, opinion and feedback on that? Yeah, so I have a feeling I'm going to be probably be more in line, aligned with you on this one. And you're probably talking about the group. Not only have I not wholesaled anything, I have my LLC. I have a website. I have a business card. I have, you know, a pretty sexy logo and all of this, <laughs> but I have no business, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's okay to start business with the damn Gmail account and nothing. Um to me, I, I think that is a good question. Um, and, you know, always with me, no legal advice, no CPA advice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think LLCs, and I'm not going to say they're not important. We have our stuff in LLCs too. Um, I view, you know, what, what your LLC is doing, right, is it's minimizing your personal liability is the nature of it. Um, and I feel like a lot of people, when they're first getting started, you know, that that's not necessarily deep in either entity. I, it can make sense to get an LLC. I'm not going to say it doesn't, but, it, you know, I don't think it's the end all be all right. Like, oh, you wholesaled two properties, you need an LLC, you're so much safer. You can get a balloon insurance policy too on your personal stuff. That'll probably, I, I think our personal's a million or two million, whatever. It's like $450 a year. Um, it's probably going to be about the same price as your LLC fees. Um, <clears throat> I feel like, and you know, we even did that on our rent properties. Like we didn't start getting LLCs until maybe we have four or five properties. Um, my thought is, you know, once you're starting to have a little more of a business and having some consistent volume, that's probably when I, I would do it. I don't think you ne necessarily need to do it right off the bat. But on the flip side, you know, if you have an LLC, it's not going to kill you um, by any means. So, so kind of not answering, but answering. Um, well, I, but, I think a little... Oh, yeah, go ahead. But, but you have a cost incurred with, you know, there, there are a lot of them there. You know, one thing I tell wholesalers is one of your biggest costs is going to be marketing. And mm -hmm. if you're already spending uh, what, four, five, six hundred dollars, I don't know what the costs are now to set up an LLC yourself, or if you're hiring somebody, it could be a thousand, fifteen hundred. Last I heard to set up an LLC yeah. or a series. Um, that's all marketing money in my mind. Right. And when you haven't done anything yet, you don't have deals. You don't have, like you're saying consistency. I mean, it seems like you're saying what you're leaning more towards the benefit of having an LLC is for asset protection, but 
mm-hmm. if you're a wholesaler and you don't have assets, it, I mean, I don't know what you're protecting at that point. And then what are the tax advantages that you would have as a wholesaler that's not doing much of anything? Right. Yeah, no. And I mean, that's and until you're wholesaling, just from if you want to get the tax perspective in there, you know, until you're probably making 50, 60K a year, you know, an entity structure change isn't going to make sense. You just own an LLC. It's no different than if it was just you owning a personal return anyway. It all just kind of goes straight to your personal return. Um, so you don't really see the tax advantages at that point. Um, so a lot of people when they're starting, you know, if you're someone where it's like, yeah, I want the aspect protection, go for it. I absolutely, you know, I also understand and personally kind of lean toward your side where, you know, and I see some people too, as you said, it's like, okay, we're going to hire an attorney. We're going to get this operating agreement in place. You know, it's like you spent 2,500 bucks. It's like, go spend your $2,500 marketing or something else. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm all for that. I think at the beginning, all of your money needs to be going in marketing and not in creating a website and having a shit ton of business cards and all the shit that you end up sending thousands of dollars for, and then you still have no deals. But um, yeah, and like on on kind of a th- this reminds me on not real estate but a separate business matter we had with one of our clients. Um, they they're very active on social. I want to call them a guru, but you know, um, have good social channels, right? And they were kind of talking about you know, like the, the cars are fancier stuff. And it reminds me just larger concept, you know, it's like, should we do it? So I kind of walked them, you know, I didn't tell them what to do, but just kind of walked through what their rationale was. And, you know, the ultimate flip for me, I talked about a tax perspective, so they understood. And then it was simply, I'm like, okay, I'll just challenge you with this one question. And I'm like, you don't even have to answer it to me. You know, I don't even know what the price was. Let's just say this car costs $7,500 a month or whatever it is. Um, you know, what's going to be your bigger return, this car, or if you spent 7,500 bucks on marketing, which you guys are already good at. Um, so it's kind of that same concept, you know, if you're a wholesaler to me, it's like, do you want all this, like I said, website business cards, this, or do you want to spend it on marketing, which can actually get you to deal to make you money? So I think that that brings up an excellent point that I've been wanting to touch with a, somebody that understood taxes. We have a friend of ours, good friend, and he, he got a big you know, influx of cash from one of the deals that he did. And his accountant says, Hey, you need to put this, spend this money or else you're going to spend tax, pay taxes on it. So he runs and buys himself a brand new vehicle. Right. Yep. And to me, I'm like, well, what's your feedback on that? Like what, what's your, <laughs> you know, somebody gets that so- kind of thing. What's your, what's your thoughts? So I just gave a presentation on my, I swear, anytime I talked about taxes, I like mention this because this is like my personal pet peeve. And, you know, I, it's one thing if it's something small, like, you know, the other year, like I got my nice fancy little leather bag from Colonel Littleton in Tennessee, you know, it's one thing if you're going to do something like that every once in a while, you know, or if you have the pocket, as long as you have the budgeting system in place, right? But it's like, just because you made a bunch of money, you don't go out and spend it to save money on taxes. I mean, you're going to spend a dollar and you save 40 cents. So if you're doing that kind of stuff, you're, you're doing one of two things. You're either robbing your business from uh, revenue or wealth, or you're robbing yourself and your future self from revenue or wealth. And, you know, tr- and trust me, I try to make it where I pay absolutely zero in taxes. Like that is my goal. If you make enough money, you're paying taxes, period. It's not necessarily a bad thing. 
you know, I'd much rather pay $10 million a year in taxes than a million because it means my income is way the hell up. Um, and I think that's, uh, I don't want to call that particular CPA out, but I just think that's like lazy and stupid tax advice, you know, and it, it happens a lot in the industry. And I feel um, people kind of are like, oh, well, look, we got your tax bill to this, but you didn't. You just got your client to spend a bunch of money on bullshit usually that they don't need. And it's just not a, not a sound decision, in my opinion. Yeah, I feel like it's a, a very old style of advice because I remember they gave my dad the same advice like 20 some odd years ago. He had a huge profit in his business and they're like, you should buy a new truck because, you know, you really need to, if not, you're going to spend like 15 grand on taxes. And he goes and spends like 55 on a truck. He needed it for the company. So, I mean, right, right. all in all, it, it made sense, but it was still that pressure of like, don't pay 15 in taxes instead of pay 55 on a, pretty much a depreciating asset. You right. know, and it's just like, and I see that a lot of times and a work truck is even one thing. Okay. But I see so many people do it with sports car or fancy vehicles just so yep. they can flaunt it. And I'm like, oh my God, invest it if anything, you know, like right. there, there's so many other avenues. Why would you do this? Yeah, no. And every once in a while, like, you know, just say like most normal people, right? Like we had, I used to work out in Aspen, board was 300 million to 2 billion in net worth, you know, kind of FU money, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in the one year they kicked out a ton of cash and they were all pilots and the one guy wanted to buy a plane. So he bought like a modest plane. It was a Pilatus and, um, you know, a million, 2 million, whatever it was, and he could ride it all off. Like that's kind of a different story, right? But to most other people, they end up, like you said, you know, and it's like, and now, especially on the real estate side, it's like, I'm about trucks aren't cheap anymore either. You know, you get when people are buying vehicles, it's like, it's easy to go drop 60, 70, 80 K hundred K on your SUVs and F2 fit, you know, depending how you finish them out. Um, and people are spending large amounts of money and it's all to save money on taxes. So I just, I, I don't think that's a wise decision yeah. overall. Yeah. It seems, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just like you said, it's very bad tax advice. And beyond that, it's very lazy investing from people that they don't take the time to understand that that's very bad tax advice. Like I, I don't need my yep. accountant telling me where to invest my money. You know, right. I, I, I take pride in knowing, I feel like I know that myself. Uh, let's, let's kind of shift gears a little bit. Um, and let me know kind of what your thoughts are is, yep. The new Biden tax plans. Have you had a chance to kind of take a look at those? And I mean, they nothing has been, to my knowledge, uh, as of today, nothing has been released as official. But a lot of things have stayed consistent to what he said he was going to do. So what are you seeing are going to be some of the effects people can expect from the new Biden tax plans on investors and and business owners? Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk through some of this stuff. And if you want me to go in a different direction, let me, let me just kind of know, but I'll, I'll just kind of knock out a list of things that are happening right now. And, you know, I might even give you guys a little political commentary on how it happened. So there we go. Um, all right. So like you said, you know, a lot of these, um, obviously this is still early and it's not, you know, set in stone, like, Hey, this is going to happen. But as you mentioned, you know, it seems like things have been pretty consistent so far. Um, and I'd operate under the assumption that there will be no changes in 21. You know, these would be 22 changes. Um, so this year, you're still kind of good to go on what's in place. That's not guaranteed, but 
it seems, you know, where we are in the economy and all this kind of stuff. And historically speaking, there will be no change in this year. Um, so I would say the first one, um, let's talk on the corporate tax rate. And the reason I'm saying that is when you'll just hear me say Trump administration because the, the tax job act is way too long to say out loud. So when the Trump administration came in the office or into office, um, one of the things they did was they changed the corporate tax rate. It went from 35% to 21%. Um, and Biden's proposal is for 28% on that right now. And I realize, um, you know, a lot of small people not might not be set up as corporations, but when that change took place, um, lots of people, you know, corporations used to only be for big boys, you know, like Apple, Microsoft of the world. Well, essentially what happened at the 21% rate was you had some room for, for arbitrage where the tax top tax bracket is 37%. You could set up a C corp and only pay 21%. So a lot of our higher earning clients, you know, it might make sense maybe to have a management company and stash some money over in a C corp and then they would save that money on the spread. And you can use a C corp. Uh, it's a little too in depth for this call, but you can use a C corp to help benefit, um, you know, some health insurance type stuff or special benefits. Um, you can kind of use it as a bank. There's a lot of extra perks in there that a lot of, um, you know, common laymen don't necessarily know about. So that became a, a pretty popular vehicle um, with, with Trump stuff. And when that was passed, you know, I think the interesting part is you kind of, I mean, you know how politics are, whatever other side does, no matter who throws it, they're going to trash it. Um, Obama administration was actually the ones to initially bring up a decrease in the corporate rate. Um, so now what they're trying to do now, you know, between Republicans and Democrats is what is the correct number to have? You know, like I said, it's probably going to go from 21 to 28 percent. Um, so that actually, you know, in theory had bipartisan support. Um, but, you know, when Trump made his plans, you know, the Democrats attacked it and I'm sure the Republicans will attack this. And, um, you know, one thing I would say in there is just kind of background on the economy and all that. I think cutting the corporate tax rate, you know, it does lead to economic growth, in my opinion. And I do think it was a little disingenuous to say, you know, only those above 400K are going to feel any, any sort of tax hike or hit, you know, or, or economic hit. Because I think there is proof that substantiates, you know, in these companies, if you're lowering the tax rate from 35 to 21%, and, you know, now it's going to go back up, there's less money to spend on people, right? You know, whether it's bonuses or investing in technology, spending money else out there, you know, it could affect a raise or a potential new position coming up, all those kind of things. So I, I think, um, you know, that statement was a little disingenuous from a tax perspective, but 28%, um, you know, still cheaper than what it, what it was. So we'll see, you know, in the future where, where that particular item goes. that um, will be kind of interesting to watch. I, I would almost guarantee it's going to be locked in at 28% for, you know, the, the next set and we'll see if it's changed in the future or not. So, so kind of taking into account, you know, what we've been having already with companies, you know, a lot of companies are hurting other companies, not so much. They've been, you know, having tremendous success with this increasing yep. the corporate tax rate. Uh, you're feeling that only affects companies that are that file under as a C corp. It doesn't affect LLCs or S corps or anything like that. 
Yeah, so that'll be on your C-Corps only. So most of your LLCs that are taxed as either S-Corps or partnerships, um, you're not going, that, that will be, that flows through to your individual tax return. So that's on, you know, like how much money you make as an individual and what your particular tax rate is. Um, and like I said, typically, you know, most of the folks that are C-Corporations are bigger companies, um, but you did have you know, if someone had kind of a more proactive CPA on the planning side, you know, I know lots of individuals who were switched to C-Corps because of that change. So if you're one of those that were moved to a C-Corp, um, you're probably not going to be as happy with the 28% because it, it might not necessarily cancel out the benefit of the C-Corp. Um, you know, like I said, there's some other benefit type stuff you can do in that entity, but you know, you're going to get a tax hike, so it might not make as much sense as it did before. Yeah, no, I think you make some really good points. I always, I, I'm not, I don't consider myself, I, I always call myself a political atheist because I just, I try to look more at the policy, not the person, right? Like what right. are the policies? And when I see just tax hikes and it's always, you know, let's tax the rich, let's tax the rich. And I'm like, I don't know. Those, those things just don't make sense to me because the rich are the ones that, have the companies that have the employees that spend the money and it's kind of like you know i don't think it's just as easy as just tax the rich i think a little more thought needs to go behind those plans to make sure that you're not gonna affect the employees that work for those rich people because the rich they're not rich because they're idiots i mean right. they're, they're gonna make the necessary adjustments to stay rich and usually that means that the people below them are the ones that get hurt Right. And, you know, and, and that ultimately boils down, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I think I'm pretty open minded on politics and I don't care if people know my political affiliation. You know, I, I personally consider myself a moderate. I usually vote more on the Republican side due to financial beliefs that I have, um, you know, and it, what you just said. Now, some people will say that's not necessarily right, but that's been Republican doctrine, you know, for 40-ish years on that belief. And there's some evidence that does support that. And there's also some evidence, you know, that you can kind of counter with that too. So, um, and then uh, the next one I'll jump into, similar to the cor corporate rate is, you know, the personal rate. And that's what a lot of people have heard the most about. And, you know, there's, um, I don't even think, I kind of get into the background about this, but to me, it's not the corporate, or excuse me, the the personal income tax rate that's getting moved up, it's only on the top bracket right now is what's being proposed. I think there's something else that I haven't heard a lot of folks talking about that has just like way, way, way more of an impact. Um, but, you know, in my opinion, we're right now at 37%. They're talking about bumping the highest tax bracket to 39.6. So you're moving up 2.6. And you have some other taxes on that once you make certain amounts of money. I won't get into that. But, you know, I, I personally don't think if you bump up that tax rate. Now, granted, people are, that are in that tax bracket, they're going to be screaming bloody murder. I really don't think that's going to have that much of an effect on the economy, in my opinion. And, you know, if you want to go back in history, a lot of this predates me. So it's just from kind of studying or reading through things. But there's something called the Laffer Curve. And this stemmed from an event. I don't even know when the dinner was. I think it was back in the day. Like it was Dick Cheney, Art Laffer and Jude Winiski from The Wall Street Journal. And, you know, if you just think of a tra traditional bell curve, right, you know, it goes up, gets higher in the middle, kind of goes across and then goes its way back down. And, you know, in the media or politics or kind of those magazines, you might hear of this, 
you know, it's like, where are we on the Laffer curve? And essentially the concept is if taxes get too high on the Laffer curve, it's going to actually negatively affect government revenue. And the reason being is like, think back when Reagan was in office. Like if I remember right, he took over and the top tax bracket was like 70%. Now that's a different story than a 39.6% tax bracket, which they're proposing. And to me with, you know, rates at 70%, you know, you're going to have people incentivized to commit tax fraud, not report income, do everything they can in their power to take something offshore if they can. You know, I mentioned that company I worked at earlier. Um, you know, it was very common um, for stuff to be, it was aircraft leasing company. So a lot of entities throughout the world, they're in Ireland or Bermuda. And, you know, you're doing that for just corporate tax rate, basically. Um, so, you know, some of this to me is like, where are we on the Laffer curve? And if you looked back, um, you know, and I was young during the time, but like when Clinton was in office in the 90s, I believe he raised from 36 to 39.6 as well, or somewhere right around there. And, you know, we had significant economic growth. Now, I also will say, yes, I'm aware, you know, when Clinton wasn't president, there's just a lot of stuff that happened, right? There's like automation and emergence of the internet and many other things. Um, but, you know, it's kind of essentially that same margin here where, you know, like I said, people are not going to... No, I feel like that's the one side that unites both parties a lot is an individual basis is no one likes to pay taxes. Right. Um, but moving from 37 to 39.6, you know, I just, I just don't see that as a huge game changer in the overall economic impact of America. Um, so. No, that, I mean, I, I agree. I think that tax increase, you know, not a huge issue, but, what other things are you seeing in this tax plan that you feel, because you mentioned something that there's something, there's something going on that nobody's talking about that you feel is going to have a much bigger impact. So what is Yeah. That? Yeah. So this one, um, it's the, uh, I can never, I'm actually have to pull a note up. I can never remember the abbreviation. Social security tax. It's OASDI, which is um, old age survivor and disability. So basically the way the system works now, and I could be a little off on my numbers, but for, you know, it's usually 15.3% and think of it as you're an employer. So like a lot of people, when they worked at a W2 job, if you're self-employed, you know, the business pays half of it. And so does the, um, it's taken half is taken out of your paycheck. So it ends up being about 15.3%. Um, I think the threshold is 142,800 for 2021, if I remember right. So once you hit that number and there's some other stuff in there, if you're a high income earner, but once you hit that number, Social Security stops. Um, so, you know, that's usually like 6.2%. 6 so what they're proposing now is if you're an individual that makes 400K or more, and, you know, think of your flippers or those kind of folks where, you know, maybe in that particular year, you had a large chunk of change where you made that money. Um, if you make over 400K, you're not going to have that exemption on social security. So the, the effect for you is it's going to be another 12.4% on that income. So that has way, way, way more than the little 2.6% raise. And I mean, I have heard about it talked, but I haven't heard about it, you know, like discussed kind of main scale, like I thought you would. And the issue with that income too, is that there's really no way around that one. It's a payroll tax. 
So it's not like it flows through to your personal tax return. You know, it's just a payroll tax. Like it is what it is. Um, so there's not a whole hell of a lot you can do to get rid of that. And I don't think, in my opinion, that has gotten the attention that it has deserved. And, you know, I just think, you know, in society, you know, you're going to have some real estate investors that flip into that. I think a lot of your like higher earning professional companies, you know, your attorney partnerships, doctors, those kind of folks. I mean, that can be a big, big sting, you know, someone making four or five, 600 K a year. Um, so that, that'll be an interesting one to me to see what happens there. Yeah. I wonder if uh, you read this part too. I was uh, tr trying to look into it a little bit more. And there was a part where they said that they, this whole projection, this whole model that they're doing for, to raise the taxes, it's going to cost the government. They're going to spend anywhere from two to $4 trillion to do this. And it could, they estimate that it would generate about $2 trillion over 10 years for the government. And I was like, we got some audio. All right, I can hear you. Did you hear the question? Nope. Oh, okay. So, um, I was reading uh, as far as a, reading a little bit more into the tax plan, and the government was saying how it they're projecting it's going to cost anywhere from two to four trillion dollars right now to pass this. And it can this whole plan can generate somewhere in the neighborhood of two trillion over the next decade. And to me, I was like, wait, you're gonna spend two to four trillion now, and it can generate two trillion in ten years. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sorry, where where does this make sense? <laughs> right. Just, and not man. and not to not to mention now for both sides, the trillions we printed last year and this year. So yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I was just thinking about that and I was like, I, and it's just kind of my th my frustration with all of this with taxes is just, it looks like, it seems to me like a, such a very, such a lazy way to try to increase revenue where I'm like, you trying to just tax people to death doesn't get you anywhere. Even, even this countries are taxed the hell out of their people. Most of those countries are broke. You know what I mean? Because right. you, you stifle innovation, you stifle entrepreneurship, business growth, all these things. So, I mean, what what else are you seeing in this tax plan that, you know, people should be concerned about or maybe start planning for? Yeah, there, there's a, other, a few other couple of big ones, especially on the real estate side. And what you just said, it reminds me, I, I'll probably butcher the quote a little bit, but I saw something in effect um, recently where it basically said, you know, taking money from someone and giving it to someone else doesn't necessarily make it noble. Um, and you know, I feel like that's what is portrayed a lot right now. Um, so, um, so two other big ones on the, especially for real estate side of things are the elimination of qualified corporate dividends won't be as rele relevant, but capital gains, you know, if you're making over a million bucks, um, and you know, don't get me wrong. That sounds like, well, it's like, Oh, someone made over a million bucks. I mean, in real estate, that can be, if, especially if you've held on to a property a long time, I mean, that can be one property, right? Um, you know, or maybe you sold two in the year. Um, that, that, that to me, that's just, I think that has the potential to have like a massive, massive impact is, you know, that particular thing and then factor in the 1031. Um, so, I mean, if you're getting rid of capital gains on over a million, 
you know, someone that made that amount of money would be 20% right now. And there's some additional taxes paid on that if you're at that revenue level. But, um, you know, you're essentially, if the top tax rate is almost 40%, you're doubling that income, right? And we've had some of these rules. I don't know when capital gains were put into place, but I'll try to tie this into 1031s as well, because they're also talking about taking that away for, I believe, over 400K. And, um, you know, the 1031 rules have been in place since, I think, 1921, if I remember right. And, you know, to me, at least, one of the reasons I think those are in place is to stimulate economic activity, right? Like, you want someone, okay, we sold this, and then you, instead of keeping that money and hoarding it, or maybe invest in market or doing whatever, you know, you're going back out and you're spending it, right? Um, you know, if you made a million bucks off one property, just say one house in particular, maybe you go, you buy two or four or eight more or whatever the number is. Um, so, I mean, that has just a huge impact. And the, the spots you're going to see that most are selling businesses and on real estate, um, the long-term capital gain. And I mean, we had a, and you know, I'm not unique in this. We had a property, we had, um, you know, just had a very sizable exit on it. And then we had another property we sold in one year. Um, so we were basically literally right at a million in long-term capital gain. The one particular property we had 830, um, I think, or 850, something like that was the gain on it. And we were able to 1031 that and, you know, go gobble a bunch of other properties up. Um, now we did have something we had to pay tax on, but essentially that should have been $0 because we 1031 that. So if in next year, you know, if all that this gets passed, what used to be potentially zero dollars in tax is now going to be 400k off that million dollars of income so i mean that's just and what i think's going to happen is you know put on your real estate investor hat or business owner hat are you going to sell the property and i think you're going to have lots of people that hold on to their businesses or properties and you know there there's you know, in their defense, there's no real way to do this. But what I think personally should happen, that makes sense logically, would be if you had some sort of like inflation index. You know, if you own a property 30 years, how much of that growth is due to inflation? Probably a, a very large amount, but I mean, that's not going to be thrown in there anyway. So I think you're going to have people, you know, sitting on businesses, sitting on properties, and regardless you know, or irregardless of what side of the political fence you're on, you know, the Biden administration won by several million votes. But if you sit back and look at where we are politically, and you're someone who's considering selling, I believe the vote count was if there was a 65,000 vote swing in about four states, we'd still have the same tax laws and we wouldn't be having in this conversation. Um, and, you know, the Senate's going to be split. Probably, you know, the VP is going to side with the um, Democrats on that. So these tax items are going to most likely get passed. But I don't think it can be anything like too radically left, you know, where you have like an AOC proposing a 70% tax hike. So, you know, kind of on this stuff from a real estate investor, business owner, whatever, I think a lot of it is you know, just kind of sit on the sidelines and wait and see what happens. And I think you're going to see a lot of properties or businesses, like I said, where people, you know, you're going to sit on the sidelines and see what happens over the next four years or eight years or whatever it ends up being. Um, just because, I mean, that's a huge, huge potential swing on that kind of stuff. I mean, what I see and 
is how that would affect velocity of money, right? Because now, yep. I mean, you, and then this is probably a concept that many people don't understand is you have the Federal Reserve that's just printing. I mean, it, what is it? We're up to like, what, $5 trillion since last year printed in the economy. Right. And they need velocity of money, which is people spending, moving, you know, moving the money around so they can keep the economy moving. But right. if you're taxing people to, you're taxing them to invest, you're taxing them to make money, and then you add inflation to all this, like when you talk about the $400,000 income, right, that they're going to get taxed, I mean, you go to the areas that are expensive areas to live in, with inflation, I mean, there's going to be a lot more people that are going to be hitting that $400,000 income, but yep. not necessarily being rich, you right. know, and it's like, I think, I, I don't know, I mean, I think these, uh, these plans, it, I, I look at it like it, it will hurt and something with the 1031, I mean, that's, that's a huge advantage for real estate investors. I mean, that is the reason why so many people love real estate is to be right. able to apply that. So if that's the case, then, I mean, there's just no way around that. I mean, just don't sell the property until the next yeah, election. <laughs> there, there, there actually are some strategies in there. Um, some of them are a little complex, but... Um, you know, you have like your traditional installment sales where you can kind of spread it out. And then um, we also do some stuff. Um, we have a company right now that's probably selling more in the like the, you know, large level of money, you know, two, probably 300 to 500 million range. We'll see. Um, so now if they sell this year in 2021, you know, all good, right? Um, but there's some strategies in place where, you know, what happens if they didn't have a buyer, just it wasn't quite right. And it spills into next year when these changes take place. Um, well, that absolutely is not ideal for them. Um, there are some strategies we can implement where you can kind of kick the can down the road on paying taxes for 30 years. Um, a little too complicated for this call on that, but um, there, there are some stuff in place where you can combat that a little bit. But, um, you know, like I said, I mean, it, the, the 1031 is a, a big one to me, and that's just, you know, over 400, you're going to lose that. And, you know, at least where we are in Austin, I mean, and, and kind of as you alluded to, like, I get sent, I may, I understand the numbers on paper, right? Like, you know, all those, okay, it, it does sound like a lot of money. It, and kind of to your, your point, you know, it, just because you have that one time, you know, to some people kind of more of a life changing sale, right? You're not necessarily rich by any means. And especially in this area, I swear the area I'm in in Austin's gone up 100k since two weeks ago. You know, <laughs> so yep. uh, you know, making making those large amounts of some, at least in this area where we are as a city, you know, there's a ton of people. If you've had a property three, five, seven years, you know, you have 100, 200k equity in it, depending where it is. Um, it, it's really not that big of a number, so. And I think it's interesting you you alluded to the velocity of money. That's something I had the exact same conversation with someone where, you know, I don't want to get too sidetracked with the economy of where we are, but it's like me personally, I'm just like, it, it'll be interesting to see what the economy does, um, you know, when we kind of normalize, right? So. Yeah, I, I like that. It's when we go back to normal, when we go back to normal, it's like, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry to just kind of, I think we, we are in the normal now. So just. Start living your life because it just seems very weird what, you know, the normal this thing is. And I don't see it going back 
to normal. Um, what what else are you seeing? Anything else on the plan? Um, one other thing in there, um, it could be real estate investor, just not necessarily, but just kind of real estate in general, um, that I thought think is interesting. And, you know, there's big changes from an estate and this is probably what I would say more estate tax, but, um, you know, estate tax as a whole, when the, <clears throat> um, Trump administration came in, they, they raised the amount significantly, you know, 11.7 .7 million. So you're in the 20 million range. And um, I don't think that number's finalized yet, but it seems like we're going to go back to kind of pre-2008-ish numbers where we'll be in the several million range. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to diminish and say that's not a large amount of money, but it's like, you know, just kind of network-wise, you know, I know lots of people in the 5 to $10 million net worth, like that's going to have a big effect on people. And one thing that, you know, I, I was a little surprised to see, I guess, is not just the estate tax amount, but you know, for just rich or poor, it doesn't matter, any homeowner in general, right? Like usually when an estate is passed, one of the biggest assets is the house, right? You know, mom and dad have owned it for 10 or 30 or 60 years or whatever it may be. And when usually the way this works is you have what is called a stepped up basis. So mom and dad die, um, and you know, you as the heir, you inherit the house. So let's just say it's worth 500K. So what happens typically is if you sold the house next day for 500K, because you received that stepped up basis, your basis was 500, you sold it for 500, you don't own any tax. What they're proposing to do now is you inherit the home at mom and dad's basis. So if they bought the house for 50K back in the day, and you know, it's gone up quite a bit. Your basis is 50K. You sold it for 500. You now owe taxes on 450 grand of gain. Um, so that that's one, you know, I haven't seen talked about specifically um, by lots of folks. And I know a lot of, you know, you kind of pick and choose what you focus on. But, um, you know, I, I just think overall on a real estate perspective, that's something that's interesting, you know, rich or poor, you know, like I said, obviously that's, that's usually the, one of the biggest assets is the house. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I think back to even here in San Antonio, we have the, the east side and the west side, uh, a lot of people that we deal with that you're, you're pretty much talking about houses that are selling for like 80, 90 grand. Um, these people have inherited their homes from their family. So now right. you're talking about, you know, at, at the time it was like, oh, this was my grandmother's home. Well, she probably paid a thousand dollars for that home. Right. right. And, and now yeah. you inherited this and it's like, hey, congratulations. Now you got to pay the tax on the difference. I mean, right. I just don't I, I don't know. I mean, those are the things that I just don't understand where the, the thought process is for this making any kind of sense. Because, I mean, it's not yep. I, at least I haven't heard where it's going to be limited to people that make a certain income or, you know, it just seems like here's the estate tax. Here's a 1031 plan. Here's all this. Like you do anything regardless of your income, like you're going to pay. And right. And that's, that, and that's one, you know, obviously hopefully that would get fine tuned where as you alluded to do in that situation, you know, that those people would have, uh, you know, it'd be an income threshold. Right. But e either way, you know, 
I mean, people have different opinions on that. I, I'm not a big fan of the death tax on that one. It's like the people that work for that already paid those taxes, um, you know, throughout their life. It's ultimately double taxation, in my opinion, on that one. So it's just terrible because I, I came from Argentina. I, I lived in Spain for about four years. And one of the things that I see when countries try to do this and tax the hell out of people is that people kind of they start getting creative and doing borderline like illegal stuff to yeah. avoid getting paid all these taxes and i always find it funny when i have friends that are very very liberal and they hate paying taxes right but yet yep. oh yeah raise the taxes and oh fuck it's april again oh, i gotta it, pay it, my it, taxes it applied to me this isn't yeah. good <laughs> And that's the thing that people don't understand. Like, don't you understand? Like, this is going to hit you anyway. If it's not when it's going, it's going to hit you when it comes back. Because it affects right. everybody, you know? And um, I don't know. I mean, I I don't have a lot of hopes for everything that's coming down the line. But I mean, it, the biggest reason for the call with you and everything is to show people, like, you need to be educated, you know? And, and if you haven't already proven <clears throat> your worth with all the stuff that you shared, like, I mean, I don't know. I guess those people are going to, be in for a rude awakening because it's just things that we talk about all the time like how do you protect yourself right and, and and you know one thing you kind of always had i felt like you know with previous tax rules is you know there's some potential timing stuff you know and i mean you and i have each familiar with some of the same gurus and all that stuff you know you kind of hear like and typically the one was make sure you own the property 12 months, you know, like if you own it 11 months and you're a flipper, like, Hey, is it worth waiting the extra month to pay capital gains versus ordinary income? And you know, that obviously depends how much money you make, all that kind of stuff. And now folks, if they have these larger sales, you know, that's going to be, it'll be in the calendar year, but that's going to be like mission critical to avoid some of this stuff, you know, and the language could potentially get changed. But, you know, like I said, the one thing right now sitting as is, you know, million bucks, no capital gains. And I had mentioned one of our stories for us personally was, you know, we made around that amount of money. If, you know, I would hate to see someone not know the rules and they had 850 of a sale, you know, at the end of the year and they were going to sell another property to say it's like December and that, that property puts them over that million dollar threshold, right? Um, and, you know, where they owe, owe all that extra tax or the same thing could be on a 1031 where you're not thinking through timing of it and maybe you had two sales and if you just would have waited till the, the next fiscal year, you could have avoided that hefty tax. Um, that's something people are gonna, and especially, you know, like on a 1031 where that's the 400K rate, you know, that I've seen lots of people make 400k, you know, they're 1031ing, right? Um, so, you know, I would hate for people not to be aware of these rules and get just really, really pinched where all of a sudden they thought they were going to have something potentially tax free and, you know, whatever the amount is 20, 50, 100k, it doesn't matter. No one wants a, a surprise tax bill like that when it's like, hold on, I thought I did this the right way. Um, so I think monitoring timing is going to be more important than ever before, especially those dealing with lots of transactions. Yeah, I, yeah, I completely agree. I think it's going to be something that as we keep moving forward, you got to get more and more educated, pay attention to the timing on everything. And as home prices keep going up, especially here in Texas, I mean, 
right. for you to cross over that million mark, <laughs> I assume it's not going to be that hard. You know, if you have any kind of substantial amount of rental properties, you know, and I'm talking about maybe four rental properties in the right areas with the appreciation we've been getting and everything you sell, I mean, you can probably cross over that million threshold very quickly. And now you're paying what? 40% of that? I mean, yep. Oh, it makes me sick thinking about it. Um, my goodness. And yeah, I, I just, it's just all the implications. Like we talk about the velocity of money, you know, then you're taxing these corporations who are not going to take the hit. They're going to take it out on their employees, maybe not promote certain people. I mean, you, you start looking at all this and it's like, nobody looks at the implications that everything else is going to carry with it. Um, so I, I want to be respectful of your time. It's already been an hour and a half. And I wanted to kind of wrap up a little bit with, hmm, let me see. I'm trying to debate here. Which one would be better? So I guess, well, we'll wrap up with this one. Um, Do you have anything that you would like to add? Uh, Anything that was? No, I, th I think that's. Pretty much, we, I think we got it. Okay. So what is, I guess the question would be, what is a way that people can stay better informed with all of the changes that are coming up? Do you, as somebody that's in the tax space and everything, have <clears throat> resource available, resource that maybe you look towards when you're trying to get educated and keep up on the, all these things? Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, anyone looking to understand, you know, hey, where's this thing going? And keep in mind where we are right now, right? For the tax CPAs who are dialed into this, you know, the April, March 15th deadline just happened. April 15th deadline is about to happen. So you're probably going to see most CPAs be pretty stagnant right now and not really um, educating their clients, I guess, at this point, because, you know, we're, we're in grind time, busy season. Um, so it's really special that you guys got me for this yeah, hour. Yeah, I was about to half. say. <laughs> um, so, uh, no, but I, I think, I imagine you'll start seeing guidance from firms after that. And, you know, if you work with the CPA, um, ask them if they're, you know, providing any sort of webinars or, you know, one pagers or brochures or whatever it may be. And I have a feeling you'll probably start seeing more firms do that during the summer or, you know, late spring, early summer. And, um, you know, and if, if they don't know anyone, ask them if they do have resources. Like we'll probably be updating this throughout, you know, the year. Um, kind of, as I mentioned, you know, I think once tax season kind of dies down and settles and maybe we're at the next step, we'll probably keep on austinexecutivetax.com. We'll probably keep a live webinar on there, you know, just updating with what we know at the time. And I imagine that'll probably get updated, you know, maybe two or three times before this stuff goes into effect. And then obviously right when it's about to go to infect in the past, make sure you're, you know, paying attention. And I would probably recommend, you know, being proactive and, and calling that CPA um, and asking, you know, hey, based on my facts and circumstances, are you aware of anything that I need to be thinking? And just like a perfect example um, for me last time is when the uh, Trump administration, uh, you know, had all these tax changes. One thing they changed was, you used to be able to know, you know, just deduct your interest right on your home. Well, they capped it at $10,000. So a few of the folks I know with larger, um, nicer, fancier homes, a larger mortgage, you know, I had some people who were like, I had no idea, you know, we pay 20 grand in interest a year and they were just completely shocked 
that they didn't know about that particular thing. And it's, you know, kind of affected them from a tax perspective. They weren't, you know, just a surprise tax bill. No one wants to get that. So I would be proactive and reach out to your, uh, your tax folks and ask them. And, and then I like <laughs> it how they say, this is not a wealth tax. <laughs> no shit, it's not. I'm like, okay, buddy, let's let's uh, rebrand that one. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, last question. I, I always like to ask everybody this question. What What is a a book or a couple books? Something that you recommend that you're like, man, this this has had such a large impact in my life as a an investor, as a business owner, or whatever you feel like it's really impacted your life. What What's that look like? Yeah, so I'll I'll mention two. One, I'm going to give a personal shout out to a friend, so she's going to owe me. Well, <laughs> um, uh, I mean, we're we're huge followers, and I still don't do it as religiously as I should on following the the law. But the book Traction, um, I think any business owner just you know Traction scaling up. I think scaling ups for a little bigger organizations, but like everyone has to read Traction if you haven't. Um, no matter who you are, where you are, you're going to get some nuggets out of that book and stuff you can put into place. And I guarantee you if we had everything in place like we should, but I just haven't put it in place yet, you know, we'd be a way better organization. And um, I would say that to anyone, you know, small or big. And then um, one thing I've, I've really been toying around with lately is, um, and like I said, you know, I'm kind of numbers dork. I always like this stuff. Um, I, I see lots of people, you know, like, okay, they get their, business finances in order. Um, but then their financial house, personal stuff may be a mess. And our, you know, I'm just talking me personally here. We were never a mess on personal finances, but you know, myself included, we're kind of like, you know, I'm like the kid whose dad is a shoemaker back in the day. It's like, I don't have any new shoes. You know, my dad's always busy making shoes for someone else. So I feel like for me personally, um, I haven't been able to spend the time setting up the systems on, okay, we make this from the business, we make this from our rent properties. How should I really think about saving, investing, spending on a personal level? And um, one of my good friends, I took one of her courses, her name is Christina Wise, um, owns a company called Wealthy Wealthy and just made this new concept called Sovereignty Academy. Um, and you know, ironically, when I ran into her, we were getting ready to launch some of these products. And she's been doing this for years. She calls herself a money coach. Um, she's really given me a lot of good guidance. And, um, you know, just essentially having a plan or a roadmap of what we need to do um, is we make more money to make sure we don't get caught, you know, just say if a, a people that aren't quite there yet, you know, maybe they're on a, a hamster wheel, and, you know, I've seen some of my higher income earners, they still don't necessarily have a pot to piss in. They're just on a Ferris wheel because, you know, their income is that much higher. And lifestyle creep is just super easy to do and, um, and have, you know, I think it's natural. And, and that kind of system she's put in place has really been a, a benefit to um, our personal finances. So. Uh, that's a excellent resource. Uh, and all of this, I'm going to put, it's going to be in the description below for you guys to check it out. But, um, I, it's something that John and I talk about consistently is the, how few people take control of their personal finances and don't even understand 
you know, what it is that they their money goes into. You know, how many of us, you know, you get to the end of the month and you say, what the hell is all my money? You know, yep. <laughs> what the hell happened here? And and you start you always go back and you start thinking of the big things. You know, did I buy a TV or did I buy this or that? But it's always that little thing is these 10, 20, $30 spends yep. here or there. And next thing you know, it's like, I spend $1,600 on lunch? Like, what the hell just happened? You know? Yeah, and no, it, that's it really super, super eye-opening. And um, I, I'm laughing when you said the big thing. So, um, you know, we're, we're not deep enough in our learning of this, but kind of my observation so far and, you know, there's a little gender stereotype, but I would say women are more guilty of the the multiple smaller purchases and the men's money goes, you know, on the big, bigger gadgets or whatever yeah. it may be that that um, trips up kind of the, some of the family finances. And we've personally been um, keeping track of our stuff in QuickBooks for years. I have our team kind of code everything for me. And then, like I said, that um, through Christina's stuff, I think we've kind of fine tuned that and you know, said, okay, every dollar that comes in, it gets stashed away like that. But yeah, I mean, some, you know, no one wants to budget, right? Like no one wants the, the, um, laying family budget, like it sucks to have to do it. So if you can have a system in place, you know, I, I think it's really beneficial for, for people to build some wealth. I, I completely agree. Uh, just as important as it is for you to track your finances in your business, it, you, it starts up at home. I mean, if you start hammering money at home and, you know, and you start struggling, it's going to affect your business anyway. So you got to yep. make sure you get that in order. So, well, I mean, sir, I want to thank you for your time. This has been amazing information. I still had like seven or eight more questions I didn't <laughs> ask you because it was just, you know, it's a lot. And and like right. I said, I do really enjoy this topic because like we just talked about, I mean, the amount of savings that you can have or the amount of expenses you can have without realizing um, but with that being said, I just, uh, I wanted to thank you. And if your last message, just tell people where to find you, where can they get a hold of you? If they want a consultation, if they want to, you know, get your services, get your feedback, where can they get a hold of you? Yeah. So, um, best way for us is, um, you know, just go to our websites, upsidecfoservices.com and austinexecutivetax.com. Um, you know, we we are not fancy marketers. We're just old school and just kind of have our websites for best point of contact. Um, but yeah, that's the easiest way to get a hold of us. And you know, uh, big or small, you know, I, you know, maybe not during tax time as much, but we're happy to get on the phone and help. Um, I feel like we've had some people in, intimidated a little bit. You know, like, oh, am I too small for this guy? You know, shoot, go to our website, shoot, shoot us an email or, or message, you know, from the website stuff. And, you know, maybe if we're not a good fit for you, we're more than happy to point you in the right direction. You know, I kind of said earlier, that's one thing I've really loved in getting out of the big corporate rat races. You know, I feel like, and it's kind of cheesy and cliche, don't get me wrong, which usually isn't my forte here. But I mean, we do get a genuinely help like individuals and the small business owner. I feel like we make a difference. So, like I said, even those that think they may be too small, which is a comment we get sometimes, you know, don't don't be bashful about reaching out to us. Um, you know, I'm happy to share some time and and um, some feedback and thoughts and steer you in the right direction. Right. Well, I appreciate it. That sounds great. And again, all the links, everything will be below. So, Brian, thank you so much for doing this. And I believe we're going to 
I'll, I'll probably bug you after tax season to see kind of how all these things shook out and do a part two to this. All right. Cool, man. I appreciate you having us. It was fun. All right, sir. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. There you have it, friends. Very, very powerful interview. Like I said, he shared a lot of nuggets. I mean, these whole things with 1031s and the capital gains. I mean, it's one thing that I tell people, even if you're small, even if you're small and you're saying, oh, these things are not going to affect me. They will. They will affect you. Everything is going to affect you because our economy is very tied together. So anything happens to one side, it's going to hurt the other. And these are things that you got to keep in mind and you got to plan for with time. You are hearing all these things at least a year in advance. So this should not come of any surprise when these things go into effect. So please re-listen to this interview. Reach out to Brian if you have questions. Reach out to us if you need anything. We're here to help. All right, comment below, shoot me an email, whatever you need. But get some help. Take this serious because this is coming down the line and it's going to hurt you if you're not prepared for it. So with that being said, I really hope you enjoy this interview. I really hope you enjoyed this and just make sure to keep checking out all of our content. I'm going to put links below everything on related videos and happy investing. Take care of yourself. Stay educated and we'll catch you in the next one.